We are nearing the end of our series called Hard Questions, Honest Answers. Uh, We've got two more weeks, this week and next week. And whereas some of the other uh, studies have been a little bit more on the intellectual side, these are going to be much more on the spiritual slash relational, emotional side. And uh, we want to talk this morning about how do I make use of my authority in Christ. Now, this came up in diverse ways in the cards we passed out this summer. And so the way I'm wording this question is a compilation of several different questions that came to us this past summer. But as soon as I use the word authority, uh, there are some of you who are thinking, I struggle with that word, authority. Some of you are thinking, hey, are you guys Pentecostal? Because a lot of people in the Pentecostal movement use that word. Or some of, some of you are hearing about this and you think, oh gosh, I've been in churches where the word authority is used in a heavy-handed way, a very legalistic way. Do you guys have some sort of heavy-handed authority uh, at Grace, or is that something that's important with churches around the country? Or maybe you're just resistant to the whole idea of authority. Um, Some of you who grew up in the 60s can remember that Timothy Leary coined the phrase, question authority. And that phrase now is a bumper sticker slogan that you see on buttons, you see on bumper stickers, you see in protests, the idea of question authority. Anytime we use this concept of authority, people are coming from different places and they have they, they question, like, what do you mean by authority? Most people struggle, they chafe against this idea of authority. So we're not going to talk about it in those ways today. Uh, what I want to talk about is the word pictures that are used in the Bible that talk about the spiritual authority that you have as a follower of Christ. The moment you come to Christ, you are endowed with a significant measure of authority. And when you think about the word pictures that are used, word pictures like ambassador. You know, if, if I am made an ambassador to a country, I have significant authority. Or think about the word witness. If I'm called up onto a witness stand to testify, I have authority to speak about what I've seen. Or think about the idea of believer-priest. If I'm a priest, I represent God to people, and I represent people to God. That's significant authority. When you come to Christ, you are endowed with significant levels of authority. Here's my simple definition of, of what authority is. This is a very simple definition of authority. Spiritual authority is delegated spiritual power that you possess by virtue of your position in Christ. Now, I would probably argue, and I'd probably suggest most of you feel this way, I don't know how to use that authority. Like, okay, I get it, I hear what you're saying, I hear the words, I don't know how to use it. Now, let me, let me take you back to a, to a cool story that I read about earlier this year. Amber Smith is a Kiowa pilot who flew both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, her story, that book, is a fabulous book. And uh, if you're looking for a good book to read, that is, that, is a, that is a great book. She is one of only a handful of woman, women who have, who have flown in combat missions in the Kiowa helicopter. These, these things fly 
low, they fly fast, they're armed to the teeth with, with bullets and bombs and all these things. And this is a dangerous helicopter. Well, all helicopters are probably dangerous. This is a very dangerous helicopter to fly. Many of her close friends died in, in battle. She not only survived, she thrived, and she rose up to become pilot in command and then air mission commander of her, of her unit. And her book describes how she felt as a woman exercising authority in what is traditionally a very male-dominated field, combat helicopter flying. And the book showed the wisdom that she used, the discernment that she had, the skills that she had in managing herself. She had positional authority, rising positional authority. But the way she used that authority was incredibly wise. And she rose to the top in, in her field. Now, you have positional authority. You are a believer priest. You are a witness. You are an ambassador. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. Abba Father is your father. You have authority. But like, like Amber, you might not know how to use that authority in the context of your family, in the context of your job, in the context of your prayer life. That's what I want to talk about this morning. To do this, I want to look at Mark chapter 6, um, and we're going to look at 7 through 56. It's a long section. And we're going to look at a, a good lesson from a bad example. We're going to see how the disciples blew it, and it's a lesson for us about how we can excel at using our spiritual authority. And, and this story is long, and it's involved, so I'm going to try to make it as clear and as fun for you as possible, but it's a long story. Okay. So first of all, here's the problem. The problem is believers don't naturally embrace the authority that has been given to them by Jesus. Embracing spiritual authority is risky. I might pray for something and it might not happen the way that I prayed about it. I might use my authority and feel foolish. I might not know how to do it and do it in the wrong way. A lot of people struggle to really embrace this authority. So we start off with Mark 6, verse 7. Jesus called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them what? Authority over the unclean spirits. Now, right off the bat, please understand this is spiritual authority. It's authority over the unseen realm. The demonic forces of darkness were very active during the ministry of Jesus, and they had authority over those demon forces of darkness. Now, we live in the 21st century, don't we? And spiritual warfare is just as real in the 21st century. It's just a lot more subtle and sophisticated in modern America in the 21st century. It's, you know, we go to Cuba, and people in Cuba, they, they, notice this, they notice the spiritual warfare so clearly in Cuba. We in America sometimes don't notice it quite as much because it's subtle, it's tricky, it's hard sometimes to discern. Notice the disciples go out two by two. They're going to use their spiritual authority, not as lone rangers, but they're going to use their spiritual authority in community. 
Spiritual authority is humble authority that's designed to be used in the context of community. So you think, okay, well, that, that was then, and this is now. That was the first century, and stuff like that happened in the first century, but that stuff didn't happen in the 21st century, right? No, wrong. It does in the 21st century. Because in Luke 10, 19, Jesus sends out the 70. And the 70 are clearly designed to be an image of the church. Why does Jesus send 70 out? Well, it's a clear reference to the 70 nations in Genesis 10 and 11. You know, after the flood, there's 70 nations mentioned in the table of nations. 70 was a symbol for the nations. Jesus is sending out the 70 to the Gentiles, and it's a picture for what would happen to the church. And guess what? The 70 have authority. They come back, uh, and Jesus, Jesus says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So the authority that was given to the disciples and the authority given to the 70 is designed to picture the authority that God wants to give to all believers as soon as they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that raises the question, how does this authority work? Well, we see that in Mark 6, 8 through 11. He charged them. I underlined the them so that you understand this, is, this all takes place in the context of community, right? That's how it works. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And uh, then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you when you, sh when you leave. Shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Clearly, this authority is going to be expressed in the context of relationship. So I, I want you to envision the disciples fanning out over all the cities in Galilee. We're talking uh, Bethsaida and Magdala and Chorazin and all these different places. How did they use this authority? According to that passage, they walk into a city. They stay with people. Laws of hospitality made that possible. They stay with people. They get to know the kids. They get to know the animals. They get to know their neighbors. As they build these relationships, their authority is being used naturally in the context of wise relationships. They're not going in there like lone rangers, you know, dominating the situation. They're making use of their authority wisely and skillfully in the context of relationships. That same thing is true of you. As you learn to use spiritual authority, you've got to do this in the context of wise and loving relationships. Had a cool thing happen to me recently, and I, I may have mentioned this to you, but um, when my kids were young, uh, I had authority as their dad. When they're really young, I had the authority, you know, you're going to bed right now. You're going to bed, and I'm going to put, put you to bed. I had the authority to do that. When they're 18 years old, not so much, right? So my, I have a daughter who's in her 30s. She calls me. She says, in tears, Dad, i got to ask your advice about something. And uh, you know, what, do you, what, do you think, what do you think about this? And she says, Dad, 
You're the only one I can trust to give me the straight answer. Wow. Wow. So what does that do to me? What does that do to me as a dad, a Christ follower? Quick prayer. All right, God, <laughs> let me do this the right way. Let me do this the right way. Because what she's saying to me is, you've got authority, Dad. And it's, it's an earned authority. I didn't say to her, you better call me when you've got a question at age 36. You better do that. That's not going to work. And so I, I, we talked for probably 15, 20 minutes, and, and she said to me at the end, all right, Dad, thanks. You delivered. You delivered. Now, I was very honored that she, that, that she said that, but here's the thing. My authority to do what I did was not based on demanding positional authority in her life. It was based upon me loving her, serving her. It was an earned authority. I have the positional authority as her father, but I, I earned that up. Now, here's the thing. In spiritual authority, you have authority from God. But to use it wisely, you have to be a skillful, humble, wise, gifted individual. I'm not saying naturally gifted, but you've got to be somebody who is giving gifts to the people around you so that they, you're a safe person. Spiritual authority is something you have, but the wise use of it is something that you are going to earn through the quality of your relationships. Here's where the rubber meets the road, verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Real spiritual power is coming through these disciples who are building relationships with people in these cities. You know, these guys must have been hugely fired up about this. They might, this is incredible. This is amazing that we are able to do this. And they're, they're realizing we, we are encountering real, true spiritual power. Now we run into a big problem. Because what do you do when life's going well? You tend to think, I'm pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty awesome. Well, what happens next is a sobering story about John the Baptist. Now, there's a reason why John the Baptist's beheading happens immediately after this. But let me tell you the story. John the Baptist has been a huge irritant to Herod Antipas. And uh, John's whole mission in life, you know, is to point the way to Jesus. But John was a prophet, and prophets speak the truth, and John speaks the truth to the leader of the region, Herod Antipas. Herod uh, is pretty ticked off about this, puts John in jail. But Herod likes John the Baptist, often brings him up out of the dungeon to talk to him. He likes what he has to say. He's drawn to John the Baptist's message. Well, one night, Herod throws a big party for himself on the shores of the Dead Sea at his winter home called Machareus. And John's in, John's in prison. And Herod gets drunk. And while he's drunk, he sees a dancer dancing. And he's intoxicated. He says, I'll give you whatever you want. Whatever you want. I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And uh, this young woman goes to her mother, and the mother says, I want, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
Herod hears this. He's probably stunned by this. But what can he do? He arrogantly bragged that he would give her up to half of his kingdom. So he gives the command, and 15 minutes later, Herod's head is on the platter for all the partygoers to see. That ruined the party. You got better believe it, ruined the party. Uh, and it was a, a great evil. What does all this have to do with authority? Well, the placement of the authority is strategic because the disciples who are on this high are now realizing, wait a second, ministry has a cost. Using spiritual authority has a downside to it. I could be persecuted. I could run afoul of the authorities. There are people who are not going to like me using spiritual authority. John used spiritual authority. Look, what, look where it got him. Head got lopped off. So these disciples are realizing, hey, spiritual authority is cool, but, but if, I, if I use this, I might run into opposition. Opposition from the enemy, maybe opposition from society. I may run into opposition. Better not use that authority. Just, li just live a plain, carefree, problem-free, pain-free sort of a life. What, why go that higher level and use that authority that I have in Christ. It's dangerous to use that authority. Now, let me, let me zero in on, on something before we, before we continue to see how Jesus remedies this. Where does your authority lie in Christ? Well, number one, Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has already prepared good works for you, for you to do. He just wants you to walk in those works. Do you realize that for you to walk in those works, it means you've got to be in touch with the risen Christ. Lord, what works do you have for me to do today? Who might you want me to pray for today? Is there, is there somebody that I need to represent you to today in my behavior, in my words? You have authority because you are his workmanship. God's already prepared works to pour through you. There's authority there. Colossians 3.10, in him you've been made complete. He is the head and rule and authority. Well, if you've been made complete, is there anything else that God needs to give to you for you to become fully complete? No, you, you have that full completeness right now. Or, or look at 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 4. Through God's divine power, he has granted to us a few things pertaining to life and godliness. No, it doesn't say that. It says everything pertaining to life and godliness that comes to the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You have everything, everything that you need right now to live a life where you use the authority of your position in Christ. You have it all. However, you have it positionally. What about experientially? Are you making use of these things? Probably not. Because what the Christian life's all about is taking our position and weaving that into our experiential practice. Is there more for you in Christ? Positionally, no. Experientially, absolutely. God wants to pour more of those works through you. 
He wants you to encounter that completeness at a much deeper level. He wants you to encounter all those things pertaining to life and godliness. So I gotta ask myself some questions. Do I wanna see more answered prayer? Do I wanna experience more power? Do I wanna see more people come to Christ? Do I wanna see God use my finances more strategically? Do I wanna see more victory in my spiritual warfare? Do I wanna have better relationships with members of my family? Positionally, I've got it all. Experientially, I need to walk in those things that God has already done in my life. But here's the thing, here's the thing. We naturally resist claiming these things in practice out of fear, out of doubt. We question whether those things really apply to us. So Jesus has a solution. And Jesus' solution is that he tests us. He tests us. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I want you to think about his testing for a second. We're going to see three stories in the rest of this chapter that show us three tests. Test number one is story number one. It's the feeding of the 5,000. In this test, Jesus gives us now listen to this, more than we can handle. You know, sometimes you, you hear the, the old cliche, Jesus will never give you more than, he, than you can handle. That is so not true. He regularly gives us more things than we can handle. By design, he tests us so that we will call upon his authority. So think about the story. Jesus and his disciples are being mobbed by the crowd. The crowds are desperate for healing. But Jesus and his disciples need some rest. And so they, they, they regroup. They get into their fishing boat. They go to a distant location. But the people on shore are seeing where they're going in the boat. And they, make, they race to this place. It's a very desolate place. By the time they get there, there are thousands of people. There are 5,000 men. That's just the men. There's probably women and children there. It could be as many as maybe 15, 20, uh, 5,000 people. It's a lot of people. That's like a, a basketball stadium filled with people. And Jesus has compassion. So he teaches and he teaches and he teaches and the sun is going down and it's getting really, really late and the disciples are hungry. And the disciples with their growling stomachs go to Jesus and they say to Jesus, I don't know if you guys do this when you're hungry, but when I'm hungry, like, I make demands. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll say something to Cindy and she'll go, you're hungry. <laughs> That's when I know I've crossed the line in talking to my wife. You're hungry. Yeah, okay. Okay, so um, Jesus says, um, he, he says, it's getting, well, the disciples say, Lord, it's getting late. Send, send these people away. Send them away. Shoo them away, Jesus, so they can get something to eat. Well, it's not like there's a bunch of Taco Bells around or Brahms. I mean, I mean and it's getting late. Private homes are probably not going to open themselves up to hundreds of different, different people. So now comes the test. Jesus says, he says, you give them something to eat. You do it. You feed these 15,000 people at the Thunder Game. You feed these 15,000, 20,000 people at Gallagher Ibarina. You do it. You feed them. 
Remember, sometimes we say, God will never give you more than you can handle. It is so not true. Jesus just gave them more than they could handle on their own power. Now, what should the disciples have done? Remember, they have authority. He gave that to them in Mark Mark, uh, Mark, uh, 6, 7. What should should they have done? Well, first, they should have remembered God's provision of the manna. Mark makes it very clear. They are in a desolate place. The Greek term is wilderness. All right, we're in the wilderness. We have no food. What happened in the Old Testament? What happened in our scriptures? God provided manna. They should have prayed, Lord Jesus. Remember what what happened in the Old Testament? Uh, can Can you provide some manna here? Can, can, can you do that? They could have done another thing. Remember Jesus' statement in the, sermon, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount? Give us this day our daily bread. Now, that was a prayer for basic daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. They could have sent, Jesus, we, you taught us to pray for daily bread. <laughs> We have no daily bread right here. Could you do like something stunning, a miracle here, and, and, and make, this, make this happen? A third thing they could have done, they could remember Jesus' instructions about bread when he sent them out. When he sent them out in Mark chapter 6, 7 and following, he said, uh, carry, what, five loaves of bread with you? So, nope, take no bread. Because like as you go, you're going to be depending upon my supernatural resources. Those are three biblically-based things they could have done, they should have done, but they didn't do it. Instead, what they, re- they do is they respond cynically. They respond cynically. <clears throat> and they're gripped with anxiety. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give, it, give, it to, give them something to eat? Now, these guys are businessmen. They know numbers. They, 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 a lot of them fish for a living. You know, Matthew, he was an accountant, a tax collector. They do the quick math. And what they realize is that we got twenty to 25,000 people here, uh, 200 denarii, that would buy about 2,400 loaves of bread. That's going to cost $35,000 in our current 2016 economy, and they're, they're, they're rolling their eyes in derision against Jesus, saying, you got to be kidding us. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So um, they see the obstacles, they respond with cynicism. So here's what, here's what Jesus, well, <clears throat> here's what Jesus does for us. Jesus allows something to come our way that is beyond what we can handle. I'm sure that's happened in your life. And you are forced to trust him for supernatural provision. You use the authority of your ability to pray and you trust him for that thing that you don't have. So what happens? They, they take the five loaves and the two fishes and Jesus begins to break the bread and break the fish and, and it's a miracle of provision, a creative miracle of provision that feeds 20 to 25,000 people and it must have taken four to five hours and while it's taking that time, the disciples are going back 
They're getting the stuff. They're passing the stuff, the stuff out to people. And they're living in the middle of a miracle. Of a miracle. A five, four to five hour long miracle. However, however it happened. And then Jesus says, okay, I want you to go bus all the tables. So they get baskets and they, they gather all the stuff back together. These are, these are large baskets. And how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Huh, coincidence, right? Twelve baskets, one for each disciple. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am your supernatural provider. Trust me. Even when it's more than you can handle, trust me. I will take care of you. When God is training you to live in the authority that he's given you, he will sometimes give you more than you can handle so that you will learn to trust in his authority. That's story number one. Here's story number two. Story number two is the story about Jesus walking on the water and what Jesus does to empower them to live in the authority of Christ is he makes himself hidden. He hides he hides himself. A lot of people, you know, think, okay, I can relate to that because sometimes I feel like God has hidden himself from me. So how does this, the hiddenness of Jesus help me understand him more? Mark 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples go into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Notice the verb, the, ver- the, the Greek word means to compel someone to do something. The disciples are living inside this miracle. Don't you love living inside miracles? I want to live there all day long. But Jesus compels them, and the Greek word means against their will. He compels them. He forces them to go to the other side. And while they're on that trip, he's going to hide himself from them so that they will learn to make use of their authority in Christ. Jesus is forcing them to be apart from him. He's going to take them through a storm. He's going to seem hidden in the context of the storm. Why would, why would Jesus do this? It doesn't seem loving to, for Jesus to hide himself from us. Well, the reason why is because when Jesus hides himself, it tests our desire for him. It tests our desire. If Jesus were constantly moving powerfully in your life. Do you think you'd ever get to the point where you thought, Jesus, I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired. You're, 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 you're forcing yourself on me a little too much right now. I feel, I feel a little overwhelmed here. I feel like you're constantly in my space. Please back off a little bit. So that what the God of the universe does is he periodically hides himself from us to test How much do we desire intimacy with the Savior? How much do we we really long for that? And when he he is hidden, what do we do with that? Do we go, doggone it, he's hidden again, I'm so mad at him? Or do do we go, Jesus, I need you. You seem hidden from me right now. My heart is yearning for you. Will you please reveal yourself to me? By making himself hidden, he encourages us to cultivate a taste for him. So uh, Jesus makes himself hidden. There's a storm that crops up in the Sea of Galilee. It's dark, it's cloudy, it's windy. The waves are crashing up over the boat. 
They can't make headway in the storm. Not only is Jesus hidden, but they begin to feel tremendously fearful. They're exhausted. They're drained. And um, so Jesus reveals himself in an exceptionally kind way. Stepping into the churning water of the Sea of Galilee, he walks toward the boat. He's walking faster than they're sailing. He walks toward the boat, but he's walking parallel with the boat. He's walking close enough to be seen, but far enough away for there to be some sort of a question. Not walking toward the ship, remember. He's walking parallel to the boat, so they don't totally recognize him, and he's remaining somewhat hidden, but somewhat visible, testing what are they going to do with Jesus? Maybe he's there, maybe he's not there. What what are they going to do with his hiddenness? What should they have done? Well, they should have remembered God's provision at the Red Sea. Uh, Because what did Moses do? He gets to the edge of the Red Sea, he lifts up his staff, and what does the sea do? It parts and they, they walk on dry ground. Jesus is doing one better than Moses. While Moses parted the Red Sea, Jesus walks on the water. And so while they were in the boat, they should have said, Jesus, uh, help us. We're not doing too well here. They should have remembered the Red Sea. They also should have remembered Psalm 107, 23 through 30. Because Psalm 107 makes it very clear that when the waves come up on the sea, people cried out to the Lord. When they cried out to the Lord, guess what happened? The wind and the waves were hushed. The disciples knew that psalm. The disciples had memorized that psalm. Particularly the fishermen had memorized that psalm. They should have remembered. Psalm 107, guys, come on. We've got to cry out to the Lord to save us during this time. They didn't do that. Uh, they should remember the stilling of the storm. This happened two chapters previous to this in the Gospel of Mark. You know, uh, Jesus is asleep on the stern, and they said, Master, don't you care? We're perishing. And he stills, stills the wind and the waves instantly. They could have remembered that. He said, Jesus, Jesus, help us. Didn't, didn't do that. Jesus goes out of his way now to stimulate faith even in his deity. Verse 50, he says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Uh, The Greek term is very clear. It just says, I am. What is he saying? Guys, I'm God. You can trust me. I'm the Lord. To make this clear, it says he was intending to pass them. Why intending to pass them? Well, what happened to Moses when Moses says, God, show me your glory? God says, I can't show you my glory. It'll kill you. Right, show, me, show me the backside of your glory. And so the, Yahweh passes by Moses, and Moses sees a portion of his glory. Jesus says, it's me, it's Yahweh, God. I'm, I'm passing by you just like I pass by Moses. I want you to see my glory and long for my power. Um, They don't do that. They don't do that. You see how Jesus, to test us, will sometimes remain hidden. And it tests our longing for him. It tests our longing for his glory. The disciples, though, they they don't get this. Instead, They respond based upon superstition. They say, it's a ghost. So they they get the supernatural part right. 
but not, not the good supernatural. They think it's the wrong kind of supernatural, the bad supernatural. Verse 52 is totally amazing. Look, look, look at what verse 52 says. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the lesson about the loaves? They understand the lesson about the loaves. See, the lesson about the loaves was, you can trust me. I will do a miracle. God tests them. Storm on the sea. What they should have done is cried out to him. Didn't do it. Why? They didn't get the lesson about the loaves, for their heart was hardened. What didn't they get? They didn't get they had the authority to call upon Jesus for a supernatural life 24-7, even in the midst of a storm. Now comes the third test. This is, this is uh, test number three. Test number three is that they now um, go to uh, the shore, and uh, Jesus now tests them by allowing the simple people, the uneducated people, the people who aren't aware of all this heavy-duty theology, to get it, even while the disciples don't get it. I say that because notice what happens in verse 54. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus. Who didn't recognize Jesus in the storm? The disciples. Who now does recognize Jesus once they get to shore? The common people. The people who didn't have all this theology. So Jesus is, is testing these disciples by making them realize, look, these guys are getting it and you're not getting it. Using your authority is a matter of, matter of simple faith in Christ. Simple faith. You begin to use and learn how to use your authority in simple faith. So the crowds begin to mob Jesus and what does Jesus do? He does exactly what he equipped his disciples to do in Mark 6, 7, he heals. For the next several hours, they go from village to village. They go from marketplace to marketplace. And everyone that Jesus touches encounters healing. What Jesus equipped his disciples to do, now Jesus is doing, modeling for them a kind of spiritual authority. Look, spiritual authority is, is a, very, a very intimidating thing. We don't know how to use it. We think, wait, that's supernatural. I can't, I can't do that stuff, or I don't know that I really have the authority to do that stuff. And what Jesus says is, I, I want you to walk in that authority. So here's the process. Process begins with Jesus giving us authority, Matthew 6, uh, Mark 6, 7 through 12. Then we get the pushback. And the pushback is somebody gets persecuted for doing this. Somebody fails at doing this. Somebody tries it and they think it doesn't work. So I'm not going to do this anymore. So Jesus tests us. Test number one, he gives us more than we think we can handle. Test number two, he makes himself hidden. Test number three, he allows us to see a, that the, sometimes the simple get it because they just are operating out of simple faith in Jesus. What's Jesus' goal in this? His goal is radical trust that we would live a lifestyle, 24-7 lifestyle of walking in the authority that we possess in Christ. However, this is a discipline. It's a discipline that you learn. I have a Nordic Track cross-country ski uh, machine in my house. 
I use it six days a week. I love it because I can multitask on this thing. I can read books. I can listen to books on, on tape. I love this thing. What I've noticed as time has gone on is I go faster, I go farther. Well, I'm actually staying in one place, okay? But I mean, I'm, in my mind, I'm going farther. And I'm a heck of a lot stronger than I was about nine, 10 months ago. It's a discipline. Learning to walk in your authority in Christ is a discipline. So let's conclude with some takeaways. How do you, do, how do you grow in, in this, this discipline? Well, number one, you start with your overall worldview. If you have a worldview that I don't know about this authority stuff, I don't get it, I'm just not gonna worry about it, that's, that's for some other denomination, that's for some other country, I'm, I'm not into this, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. If that's your worldview, you're not gonna grow in this discipline at all. You live in a supernatural universe. Um, you live in a sur- supernatural world. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to trust him, that God's kingdom power will break through into our present circumstances. And many Christians never are willing to explore, what does it mean for me to walk in my authority? You know, Jesus gives him so many clues about this, 12 baskets of leftovers, the storm ceases the moment he walks into the boat. Uh, uneducated crowds recognize him immediately. He gives clues to the supernatural to the disciples, and he's given clues to the supernatural in your life as well. How many of you could say, I've experienced dramatic answer prayer? Probably a lot of you could say that. What happens the next time you face an impossible situation? I don't know if God's going to come through. He came through before, <laughs> but maybe, maybe I've exhausted his generosity Maybe he's not going to do it this time. I'm so discouraged. He's probably not going to answer this prayer. Or maybe I'm going to have to persevere. I'm not, I don't know if I can persevere. Yeah, it's, it's like we, we, live, we live in this defeatist world that cuts out any dramatic sense of the supernatural. Here's the second thing that you can do. Take some risks in prayer. You know, um, these guys could have taken some risks Jesus, uh, you're asking us to feed the 25,000. We can't do it. We're asking you to do it. Now, that would have been risky because, you know, what could Jesus have said? I mean, maybe there's some fear that he would respond negatively. It was a risk. It was a risk in the boat to say, Jesus, we're calling upon you to still the storm. That was somewhat of a risk. But I'm telling you, you're not going to encounter authority until you take some risks in prayer. So our healing prayer team has been doing this for the past, I don't know, four or five years. And when we started out, um, we, we were pretty nervous about, about, about our healing prayer ministry, like, oh, you know, what, what, how are we going to do this? And what kind of help are we going to, are we going to get from the Lord in these things? And how bold are we going to be? How how much are we going to trust God for things? Over the past four years, we have seen some really cool answers to prayer. And you know what that's done for a healing prayer team? It's made us more bold. It's made us pray riskier prayers. Um, it's given us more faith. 
It's taught us how to pray for impossible sorts of situations. We've had situations on our healing prayer team where somebody was stuck for two years or longer with job frustrations. And the morning after the healing prayer time took place, five job offers, or f- five offers for interviews came in. Well, we've had situations where, where somebody says, you prayed for me and I have been symptom-free for the, in the six months since you prayed for me. Or somebody else who says, Rod, I, I'll tell you that I track my current place with Christ from this time when you guys prayed for me. That, that's where things began to change in my life. So I hear stories like that, and I think, God, this is such a cool adventure. This is so fun. Uh, give us more. Give us more of this at Grace Community Church, among our healing prayer team. This is really fun. Sometimes people come in requesting prayer for healing. They don't encounter healing. And they say, but God did something else really cool in my life that was sort of a root problem that I've had for years and years and years. And now it brings them into the adventure of continuing to pray for God's supernatural power. If you want to live in authority, you've got to take risks and prayer. And then finally, uh, learn to do this in community. So at various parts of the auditorium, I have this thing here called the the James 5.16 plan about healing prayer in small groups. And uh, we uh, started doing this oh, probably four, four years ago, and I have revised this over the years. And this is a simple plan for how you as a follower of Jesus can apply some of the things that I just talked about, healing prayer in small groups. And I would really encourage you, if you're in a small group, to, to try using this within your small group. Um, if, you're, if what I've said is totally brand new to you today, I encourage you to read through this and go with an open mind and say, huh, okay, I'm willing to explore this. I should have about 400 of these. And so, um, you know, if you're a family, just, just take one and, uh, and, and take a look at this. And maybe it's something you can begin to apply in, in your own life. God has given each one of us who know Christ in this room authority. My challenge to you is this. Use it. Use it in dependence upon him. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, we um, are pretty amazed when we think about the fact that we are standing, uh, we are seated at the right hand of your son seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. We're pretty amazed when we think about that because what that means is that uh, we have a position of authority that we can scarcely comprehend. Lord, teach us how to use this humbly in community for your glory. May we be about the discipline of learning to walk and the authority of our ascended union with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.